Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Vital Signs of Democracy podcast. Is democracy threatened in America? Because we never thought in our lifetimes we would be asking that question. And yet here we are, seemingly more polarized than any other time in our history. So our goal in this podcast isn't to tell you the news, but to help us understand how the stories we hear and believe are crafted for other reasons and how that impacts our belief in a democratic form of governance. We're gonna slow down and take a deep look at motivations, interpretations, and yes, the facts themselves. I'm Debbie Lynn Molyneux, co-publisher of The Fulcrum. I'm also the president and CEO of Bridge Alliance, which is a coalition of almost 600 organizations who are working to bring about a thriving, just, and healthy democratic republic. You can learn more about our work at bridgealliance.us. And I'm David Reardon, director of Vital Signs of Democracy. And every two weeks, we publish a rating of the threat level to democracy in America based on our unique narrative analysis of the news. And we pay particular attention to how both Make America Great narratives from the Biden Democrats and the MAGA Republicans are garnering support from their voters or not. So let's get into it today. You know, there's there's a big story that's brewing out there, of course, as um, the former president claims he's about to be indicted or arrested and a lot of media hoopla going on around that. And it has caused me to kind of stop and think about how we as human beings can take facts of what happened. So this is like without any interpretation, but we take the facts of what happened and then we apply a different interpretation of what that means to create the stories that we live into. And so a lot of, of what I hear us talking about in this podcast, David, is there is a the MAGA Republican story that's taken the facts of government and assigned meaning to it that says everything that everything the government does is evil or bad and and with malfeasance. And then there's another taking those same set of facts that says the government has been set up to protect certain people from accountability or responsibility for the larger whole that we are together. And these are kind of like the two interpretations, if you will, of where we are with our government today. I like that you're teeing this up because one of the challenges you and I talk about a lot is the fundamental difference between someone stating facts versus someone telling a story about those facts. Now, there's nothing wrong with telling stories that give meaning to the facts that we collect. We all take information in and make up a story about what it means to us or to others. And we know that two people can look at the same facts and tell completely different stories about them. But the obvious danger in all of this is when someone's story, their interpretation of the facts, is substituted for the actual fact itself. And if that happens, you can end up with a lie or the kind of intentional disinformation that currently is causing a lot of uncertainty and confusion. As you noted, the more radical MAGA Republicans think that the federal government is bad. I think you went as far as to use the word evil. On the other hand, the Biden Democrats seem to think that the federal government is needed to protect the rights of all Americans across all 50 states, even those that have not been protected in the past by some of those states. So two fundamentally different views of the federal government. What's the problem? 
and is it serious enough that it might damage our democracy? Here is what we're seeing in our narrative analysis at Vital Signs. We see different stories about the same facts all the time. But we also see that if the two stories are radically different enough from each other, fear of the other story becoming dominant is much more likely. And if that fear becomes significant enough, you can see it drive people to action like we saw on January 6th at the Capitol. They believe the MAGA big lie that Biden had cheated in the election, and they should stop his certification as president, with violence if necessary. So that's just some broad strokes, but didn't you tell me that you had a personal experience with this story versus fact conundrum? I recently spent five hours on an airplane next to a woman who believes in conspiracy theories. And so part of why this is relevant and why I want to talk about it with us, you know, on the show today is because she had taken all of these specific facts, spent hours and hours, tens of thousands of hours researching on the internet the truth of the matter, and I use truth in quotes because this is about meaning, not about facts. And until she found what she considered to be primary sources, she is providing me with all of what in her mind is evidence and in my mind is meaning. I am aware that there is nothing that I can say that's going to change this woman's mind because I am not a crusader for the truth. I'm a crusader for the story that works to get us to the future we want to get to. Right. And so that's a difference, a difference of purpose, if you will, for what the stories are telling us. And for the crusaders who are the truth seekers who really want to get down to it, they seem to skip over. Or in my opinion, I don't see them actually looking at their own interpretation of the facts. I see them taking an interpretation that then fits or contorts to their worldview that already exists. And this is why conspiracy theories are so dangerous for our culture right now. In times of uncertainty, if we, instead of looking for a story that's going to help us be better in the future, we instead look for stories that blame somebody for the, the place we find ourselves in this uh, time of uncertainty, those two different narratives are the destruction of our democracy. I certainly can relate to what you're saying about how difficult our current cultural narrative environment feels and, and how that is possibly playing a role in conjuring up threats to our democracy. And it's one thing for you and I to talk about this distorted political reality show as we analyze the news. But in this case, you had a very personal five-hour captured experience with someone from a different tribe than you on a plane. And here's the deeper cut. It would be one thing for you to engage with her well-worked-out narrative about a MAGA America that she wants to live in. But it's another if it's not really the core story that's animating her, whether she realizes it or not. So what would that story be? Much has been made since Trump's unexpected victory in 2016 about who the voters were that delivered that victory to him. And who was them? If you look at the voting data, it tells us his core audience was primarily working class white people, and a great many of them in rural areas. In 2016, when Hillary Clinton's campaign looked at the electoral map, 
they apparently had little interest in these sparsely populated rural counties. It just didn't seem that there were enough votes there to make a difference. So they ignored them. And it turned out the number of voters was small in those counties. But if you got all of them, like Trump did, they added up to a significant number. And the remarkable thing was that his supporters voted for him, even though it was revealed during the campaign that he was a sexual predator, and also said in one of the national presidential debates that he wasn't sure he would abide by the election results unless he won. So what was the one theme that overrode all of that that we see in our narrative analysis? It just has to be something deeper, something more human than some story about the federal government being evil. Well, here it is. His voters did not feel listened to, particularly by liberal politicians in eight years of President Obama. They just could not imagine living in the world that those liberals kept promoting. So all the stories and conspiracy theories, like the ones you heard on the plane, came later. But underneath all that bluster, they simply didn't feel listened to. One of the most common complaints of all us humans. And they believed that Trump was going to be their voice. And in response, the Democrats demonized or made fun of them as cult members. It just wasn't a great recipe for a healthy debate about the future of America. Right. And, well, and I think part of, part of where I landed, too, after my five hours with, my, with the woman on the plane, I, and I'm calling her Jane, by the way, part of where I landed is that our interactions in the world, in, in, in talking, in making sense of things, in making meaning together, we expect it to be pleasurable. And I don't think that's the point. I think the point of having conversations with each other, especially when somebody has a different interpretation of what the facts mean, is actually part of American democracy. Our ability to do that disagreeing and, and uh, arguing and debating is, is part of the process. And so any attempt to shut that down to shut down this exchange of ideas, I think, takes us away from democracy. I'm curious, who started the five-hour conversation on the plane? She kind of fished initially, like, like I'm going to try this idea out here and see if it lands and see what kind of reaction I get. And this was after she totally ignored my noise-canceling headphones and the fact that I was staring at my phone and she just kept talking to me. So that's interesting. Let me just take a moment for a second. So she initiated, right? Absolutely. It wasn't you going, you know, by the way, I am this editor of this magazine and we do this podcast. It was her that initiated. Strangers on a plane. She had no idea what I did. Got it. And I am a, a bubble person on the plane. Like I am the introvert, leave me alone, don't talk to me person. So I surrendered because she obviously needed to be seen and expressed and have some sort of connection to another person. So she kind of put out the first line and it was something about healthcare. So on planes, I wear a mask still. Uh, most people do not. And so I kind of stand out probably uh, because I'm wearing a mask on the plane. And, and she said something about, uh, about our healthcare system and how it, it isn't set up to serve people to really help them be healthy. And and from there, we just kind of went into like system after system after system. So she had 
things about the schools. She had things about the media. She had things uh, to, to say about uh, devices. She's very anti-device, obviously, because she wouldn't let me read my phone on the plane. But underneath it all, she was like, yeah, these are all ways that, that th those people, whoever those people are, are trying to kill us and keep us apart. When I heard her talk over five hours, her worldview kind of came down to this. There's a group of global elite people who have intentionally broken our systems that are made up of uh, eugenicists and they're trying to kill off about half of the world's population. Like, so this is a, a familiar, for anybody who's looked into conspiracy theories, this is a familiar conspiracy theory that's out there. And she she went through system after system of how they have deconstructed the system to make us, the people, more compliant and um, gullible and stupid because we don't know what our rights are. Despite the fact that I don't believe that that there's a group of elites trying to kill half the world population. I do think there's something wrong with our education system. And I do think that there's a lack of civics education specifically so that we can have in, an informed citizenry. So regardless of the how it came about or why, I actually found some common ground with Jane about, yeah, we actually need to, to do more civics education in our schools and people need to be more personally responsible for if they've missed that education because they grew up in this kind of donut hole time frame, um, they need to go back and recapture it. And then there needs to be some personal responsibility for that. So there's some common ground, despite the fact that our worldviews are very divergent. The thing that, that I, I do also want to point out is that most people that I know who believe in one or more conspiracy theories, and I have many friends who believe in one or more, they are not stupid people. They are not gullible people. They are people for whom the current system has not worked. And they are looking for something that, that will work for them. And, and, and so I just like, I don't want to make the mistake of denigrating people who believe conspiracy theories for the sake of feeling better about myself. And I think that that is another you know, key for us finding our way forward together to actually, if we believe in democracy, and most of these folks do, then we need to find a way to think about democracy together. And that's the rub, isn't it? It's really hard to do something together, no matter who you are, if you don't share the same story about why you're doing it. I'm curious, given that the federal government was one of the main focuses of her fear, did she say anything about the economic impacts of having such a large federal presence in her life? You know, one of the things that, that Jane talked with me about was this kind of global elite. And I know that this is another kind of narrative piece right now where we talk about the 1% or the 0.1% that controls, you know, some huge amount of the, of the economic power of our nation and the world, actually. And so how does this socioeconomic gap feed into the narrative stream and all of this activity that's going on? It's a great question and something I wanted to highlight today as a follow-up to last week when we talked about big corporations like Fox News who were caught lying to their audience. And I think I said something then like, 
Fox News is not the only uber-profitable corporation that lies to the American people if it serves their interests. So Trump certainly benefited from Fox News lying to their audience. Oftentimes, they framed him as the great crusader for white working-class voters. As he railed against some imagined liberal elite, he claimed was controlling America. In reality, Trump is a member of the ultra-wealthy class that includes both MAGA Republicans and Biden Democrats. All of them benefited from the massive tax break Trump gave wealthy people and big corporations while he was president. Very little of those massive savings so far have trickled down to his working class audience. All this posturing, however, is a kind of a smokescreen for the question I want to explore. A question that strikes to the very heart of the role of 21st century capitalism in a democracy like the United States. Here's the question. Will wealthy individuals and big corporations stand up for our democratic institutions if a more autocratic pro-wealth president like Trump offers them a better deal that will increase their profitability far more than our current democracy can offer? Let me see if I can sort that question out, given what we're seeing in our narrative analysis concerning current economic news and the impact of big tech. In a capitalistic system like we have in America, it is often said that if you want to really find out what's going on, follow the money. That usually means to disregard what wealthy people and corporate giants say and instead pay attention to where they commit their money. And all of us know this to be true. I mean, ideally, we all spend our money on what we believe is really happening. And given the disparity of wealth that currently exists in America, it turns out that the rich individuals and big corporations that are part of this infamous 1% come from both sides of the aisle. Sometimes cynics will even claim that this culture war that seems so prominent at the moment between red and blue states is being promoted by a power financial elite of both parties to distract us ordinary citizens from figuring out that they're taking more and more control of our financial lives. I mean, one way this is expressed is the game is rigged. So our vital signs narrative analysis is picking up this alternative corporate narrative that's emerging at the moment mostly from big tech entrepreneurs. Many of the innovators in big tech, like Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, or Mark Zuckerberg, ascribe to a libertarian manifesto that says government regulations are bad for business. They claim that if we just let the marketplace decide who wins and loses and leave their giant corporations unregulated, no matter how much they control the markets they're in, that we all would be better off. And when I hear that, I'm never sure who the we is that they're talking about. What I do know is that currently, the top 1% of Americans holds 15 times more wealth than the bottom 50% combined. Elon's wealth, for example, has surpassed $200 billion. It would take a median U.S. worker over 4 million years to make that much. So you've touched on a few of the big kind of ultra-rich entrepreneurs um, that we certainly hear more about than I care to. But 
who are the big American corporations you're talking about? For the sake of argument, let's just say some of that list includes energy companies like Chevron and ExxonMobil, big tech companies like Google, Apple, Meta, Amazon, and Microsoft, media companies like Comcast, Disney, and the Fox Corporation, and big banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. So when you consider the political contributions, those individuals and corporations that could influence our democracy one way or another, is there anyone keeping track of where they're landing on the question of democracy in America? Yes, but before we get into that, Let's remember that this current political contribution spree by corporations and wealthy individuals began with the Supreme Court ruling in 2010 by a 5-4 to four conservative majority on the court. The ruling allowed unlimited anonymous contributions to be made by super PACs funded by individuals and corporations to both candidates and referendums. And that changed everything in terms of the influence of big, sometimes dark money in politics. And neither party that we can see has a better record than the other in opposing this kind of big money influence in our political system. We also see this phenomenon in other parts of the world. I mean, autocratic systems in countries like Russia and China also allow certain individuals, and we'll just call them oligarchs, to amass enormous wealth while their country's other citizens suffer. They don't seem to need democratic institutions to make a lot of money and live with their friends and family in a lavish lifestyle. All right. So, David, so I'm going to ask again, is there anyone keeping score on what these big corporations are doing as it relates to supporting our democracy or destroying it? There are a great many organizations that do some sort of scoreboard like you're talking about. But the one I'm going to use as an example here is accountability.us. Now, they're a center-left leaning nonprofit to be sure, and they're funded by foundations that tend to support liberal causes. So everybody can go look for themselves about who they are and how they do their ratings. But what I like about accountability.us is the way they give their grades from A to F to particular corporations and their key executives concerning their support for democratic institutions. There are two categories of activity they rate. The first is what they say in the public record. Now, some would call this the public expression of their values. And the second is what they actually do in the world. And this is what and who these corporations and key executives contribute to politically. At the moment, a corporation like Hewlett-Packard has an A rating, and Apple is right behind them with a B. As opposed to other major corporations with very famous brands who have F ratings. So give me some like real-world examples here of exactly what they say or what they do that's the difference between an A rating and an F rating. Okay, here is what HP said that gets them an A rating. They made a statement in support of democracy. They said they opposed the events of January 6th, and they took a major action in support of voting rights. Now, here's what Google said 
that got them an F rating. They made a statement in support of democracy, and they opposed the events of January 6th. Now, you may be saying to yourself, wait a minute, those seem the same. And they are, but check out the next factor. HP, who has an A rating, has not enabled or allowed its platforms to be used to share disinformation and lies about the legitimacy of our elections. As opposed to Google with an F rating, who did allow their platforms to share disinformation that question the results of the 2020 election. And it gets even more pronounced in terms of who they actually contribute to politically. HP, with an A rating, did not donate to federal lawmakers who opposed voting rights legislation. And they did not donate to those that opposed creating a congressional January 6th investigation. As opposed to Google, with an F rating, that did donate to lawmakers who opposed voting rights and did donate to those that opposed a congressional January 6th investigation. Bringing it back to our current culture war between MAGA Republicans and Biden Democrats, we see something interesting. What makes it so hard to sort out who the good and bad guys are is not divided by party. It's not MAGA Republicans versus Biden Democrats. It's both. Big money no matter its political orientation, seems to be the glue that holds this group together. Are they the dark cabal like Jane on the Plain claims is coming after us? Probably not. But again, like we said earlier, if you want to know what is about to happen, follow the money. And you'll be right more than not. And we, the people who are not part of the 1%, seem to be having less and less say about how that works for us. So if you think I'm being harsh, you can test it for yourself. The next time you see a YouTube video or read a Twitter post about what a particular corporation is saying or doing, first go to a verifiable source and check out if it's true. For example, last week we played one of Chevron Oil's commercial series, claiming that they are transitioning to green sources of energy. I mean, it's a beautiful commercial, but the story it's promoting couldn't be further from the truth. So in their case, do you think if they could continue drilling and refining fossil fuels while disregarding the damage they're doing to the planet, would they support a less democratic government that would let them do that? It's something to think about. That's a really interesting test, David. And I, I know that, you know, there've been a lot of rating systems out there for other issues, not for democracy itself until now. So I think I'm going to take a look at where I do business also, not just watching their ads or reading their press releases and make sure that the, that my dollars, if we're going to follow the money, my dollars are going to be spent with companies that strengthen democracy. And that is certainly a great thought to end on. So I think uh, that's going to be a wrap for us this week. We could go on for hours and hours. David, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone in our audience for listening to Vital Science for Democracy. And for everybody out there, if you want to see the latest scan and some of the big details that we didn't go into, we sort of touched on, you can go to vitalsignsofdemocracy.com. And if you want to get the latest news on uh, democracy and electoral reform, check out thefulcrum.us.